Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this is going to be a great episode because I get to, once again, explore a topic that I have been dying to explore for a long time, and that is the history of art theft. You know, big art heists where priceless pieces, masterworks are stolen and held for ransom or, you know, taken and bought by private collectors. You know, this is kind of the stuff that's reserved for Hollywood movies and television shows, or so I thought. It turns out that this is a phenomenon that is way more common in real life than I imagined and way more common even than Hollywood would have us believe. And where did I learn this information? Well, today's guest, of course, Anthony Amore, who is a historian of art theft and who is also the head of security for the Isabella Gardner Museum in Boston. So he knows about this, and that was also the site of a one of the most famous American art thefts, art heists in history, and we're going to hopefully get into some of that. More specifically, we're going to talk about the greatest female art thief of all time, Rose Dugdale, whose life is an absolute roller coaster. So I cannot wait to get right into this with Anthony Amore. Anthony, thank you so much for being on the show today, and... Just to get things off on the right foot, what should I call you? Do you like Anthony? Do you like Amore? So you pronounced my name properly. I appreciate that. I go by Anthony. Um, my dad, my dad was Tony, so I go by Anthony, and uh, that's that's perfect. Makes sense. There was so my favorite pro wrestler was Double A, the Enforcer, Arn Anderson, and I feel like <laughs> if you if that name wasn't taken by him, that would be a great name for you because that's that's what people call me. By some of my friends call me Double A, and you know. It's the funniest thing you're bringing this up, Dan, because do you go by Dan or Daniel? Uh, either one. It's fine. Sometimes the funk lord. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so today, uh, this morning, I went to Guitar Center looking, just messing around with guitars, and I see this acoustic guitar, and on the head of it, instead of saying Alvarez, it says AA, like this beautiful double yeah. A symbol, and I bought it just because of that, and, <laughs> and it's funny you brought up double A. <laughs> Hey, marketing works. It's it's catchy. Double it H, you know. Um, yes, and yeah. I like the enforcer part of that too. So let's, you know, I want to talk a little bit about you because I think your background. I mean, this is so we're, we're, we're you know we're hitting your book here. This is ultimately we're going to talk about the woman who stole Vermeer, which is I mean this is a this is a great book and it talks about art theft, which I have this weird fascination with. There's certain I'm a big movie lover. And there seems to be a disproportionate amount of architects in movies and a disproportionate amount of art theft. <laughs> These are the yes. two weird things in movie tropes. And we're going to we're going to hit on that today because I think you're the expert here. But I want to I want to know a little bit about like your background, how you got into this. And I want you to start with the with the the essential stuff first. And that is that you are a Yankee fan living in Boston. <laughs> uh, what's going on there, man? How did you know that? Did I put that in my bio somewhere? I do Thanks. research that you would not believe. There are things that what? I know about you and your history that will should never see the light of day, Anthony. So let's let's get No, to please bring it to light. I'm very much into <laughs> transparency, but that's a great question. I love that question. I I uh 
I'm actually, I live in Boston for the last 25 years, but I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. And Providence is an interesting place because in my youth, it was populated essentially by two ethnic groups, Italian Americans and Irish Americans. And almost split down the line, Italian Americans rooted for the Yankees, and Irish Americans rooted for the Red Sox. And the Italian people were big Yankee fans because of Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Berra and Phil Rizzuto and countless Italian Americans in New York who played for Yankees. Well, DiMaggio was from California. We get my point. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I grew up, my father was a huge Yankee fan, and I grew up listening to staticky Yankee broadcasts on the radio and um, moved here and still wore the hat and the jacket. And, you know, it's funny, 25 years ago, people would give me a lot of a lot of heat about it. And a lot of times it wasn't pleasant or right. jovial. Right. Uh, right. No, no, nobody cares anymore. They, I think when baseball expanded to, um, you know, now they play 19 games a season against each other. It's it's so diluted that nobody really cares about the rivalry as much. Well, I think also the, the you know, the Red Sox winning the World Series finally, you know, breaking the, the quote unquote curse. I think that does a lot, you know, for yet a lot of pent up anger. I'm from Chicago. So there's a lot of that with the Cubs, you know, and I think once once you win, it's kind of like, all right, that's over. We can kind of chill out a little bit, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. So I went to school in Boston and the one of the most embarrassing parts of my life is that I lived on Kenmore Square for a year and a half. And I could with the, you know, I've got a pretty decent arm. I could throw a baseball and hit Fenway Park, yet I never saw a game there. And that is one Holy. of the, I know, that is like one of the biggest regrets. That and not going to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania when I drove back. I'm a big Groundhog Day fan. <laughs> and not going there. Those are my two biggest regrets. Well, and not seeing WrestleMania 18. But <laughs> those are my three biggest regrets in life. Uh, so, And I'm sure you as a baseball fan can understand that. The Fenway. Sure. Park. So, some, someday you'll, you know, I used to go to every Yankee Red Sox game at Fenway. And then I had a daughter and um, I couldn't bring her because back then, this was the late 90s, it was too too, it, it was too vicious. Like I, I couldn't have a kid there with me. They were the things that she would have heard would have been right. too, <laughs> too uh, harmful for her delicate yeah. ears. So, so I, I haven't been much either. You don't want um, to grow up too I, fast. <laughs> no, especially at Fenway, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, I live in in L.A. and just you know, I, I won't go down a whole tangent here, but just the the animosity between the the Dodgers and the Giants, culminating in someone getting beaten to death in a in a parking lot. When no that, kidding. Yeah, that's like. I mean, he didn't. He he ended up being hospitalized. Beaten to death is he didn't really die, but but he, pretty I mean, close. Pretty close. And that's the stuff that really bothers me. You know, everyone's going to get a little heat for wearing the other team. You know, but uh, it's just people taking the stuff to the extreme blows my mind. But speaking of the extreme, you've got some, what I love about your background is that, you know, I, I was in Boston during 9-11 and I remember I was going to school and I remember the day it happened, like everybody who grew up during that time period. And the, I'm, you know, everyone knows that the planes came out of Logan Airport, which is in Boston for those who don't know. Um, so you were, you know, you were part of the Homeland Security and the Transportation Security Administration that kind of rebuilt security in Logan Airport after 9-11, right? Yeah, that was a heck of a challenge. I mean, it was... Um you know, imagine, it's hard to imagine, you know, for me, it seems like yesterday, but it's hard to imagine you say, we're going to start a federal agency of 50,000 some odd employees and right. deploy them within, 
you know, months, I, I, even just the time, how, how quickly the legislation passed in um, November mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. 2001. So it was two months, this major legislation passed and um, could have went to Manchester Airport in New Hampshire. Uh, my, my business, my work partner and I um, were asked to come to Logan and we thought, you know, I was younger then and I thought, you know, if you're going to be in security, if you don't want to take a challenge like that, then, right. you know, you, what are you doing here? So yeah. we went to Logan and that, that was an enormous um, challenge. It was a real honor to work on it, though. Yeah. I mean, it just I, I can't even imagine what that was like. But um, was so was that your first that wasn't really your first foray into security, but that was probably the most high profile position you had taken up until that point, I imagine. Without a doubt. It was uh, I had done five years with the what used to be the Immigration Naturalization Service, CBP now. Mm-hmm. And then I. Uh, I was a special agent in aviation security, left the government in February of 2001 and was called back and asked to come back and help after 9-11. And you remember, you, you just mentioned you, you remember those days. Who could yeah. say no to that? So, right. yeah, yeah. you know, and I'm glad I did. I mean, it was just a seminal. I, I can't imagine having a, a, an experience that compares to building a federal agency at the place from which the worst terrorist attack in the country's history ever uh, was launched. So, you know, it's a, again, it's an honor to have worked that, but it was incredibly stressful. Yeah. No. And, and I, so it's, you know, you've kind of been, you know, at the forefront of all of this. And so clearly you have the experience when it comes to security and now you're working, you know, as a director of security and, and chief investigator for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. And this, so, you know, we're, we're going to get into art theft and, you know, you've got a couple of other books besides this one on art theft. And yeah, obviously you've got the history, you've got the pedigree, you've got the knowledge, and you also have the experience. You know, I, I did a little research and this, this I thought was really cool. Um, and it's a great entryway into what we're going to talk about. But th- that particular museum had the largest property theft in the world in 1990. You know, if I'm, you're going to obviously know the details, and, and I know it's an ongoing investigation. So there's probably not a lot you can talk about here. But you were, you know, you've kind of, you, you're, in, I think you're in charge of looking into this for them now, obviously. Obviously, you weren't working for them in 1990. But, you know, 13 works, $500 million. None of this artwork has been recovered. And one of the pieces that was stolen was a Vermeer. And that is considered to be the most valuable stolen piece of art in the world. Uh, this, I thought, was just really amazing. So tell me a little bit about your work with this. Did this kind of get you into the Vermeer um, and, and Rose Dugdale, which we're going to get into, or is it kind of unre- an unrelated but cool coincidence? Well, um, that's a great question. It's all intertwined in a way because um, when you think about the background I have that we just discussed, I had to come from working on things that relate to anti-terrorism to a whole new world of museum security and art theft investigation. So I, I had a two-pronged approach. One was I had a mentor, a retired uh, detective sergeant from Scotland Yard, who was a legend in art recovery, just passed away uh, in November, uh, first week of November. Um, so he trained me on a lot of perspectives. But I also just, uh, I'm very much data-minded and research-minded. And I, I did, look, I'm still doing it, Daniel. I'm working constantly, researching everything. Every art heist you can ever imagine. It's, I've been doing it for 15 years. And um, the Godner theft, I felt the only way to, to get into the bones of the Godner heist was to understand who does these things and why and what becomes of the art by looking at past examples. So 
you asked about how the Godner theft happened and, and um, the, the, the nutshell version is that in on March 18, 1990, two thieves, we believe local criminals, um, uh, disguised themselves as police officers and overnight uh, convinced a guard uh, rather easily to let them into our museum at 1.24 in the morning. And they got in, they talked to the guard and got him to get his partner downstairs and told them they were under arrest, told them there was a warrant out for them. They were under arrest. The thieves handcuffed them and locked them in the basement and then went upstairs and they stole 13 pieces of art from our museum. Um, and you mentioned some of the pieces. The Vermeer is the most valuable stolen thing in the entire world. Um, the value of it is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And the second most valuable stolen thing in the world was one of the Rembrandts that was stolen. It was, it's called Storm in the Sea of Galilee, which is the only seascape Rembrandt ever painted. So we have, um, there, there are 11 other pieces too, all of them very, very important. And none of them have been uh, recovered. And I've been looking for them for 15 years. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do, find stolen art. What happened was is, is that when I was doing the research into who steals art and why, I kept coming across this name, Rose Dugdale. And she stood out to me because she talked her way into a, uh, uh, not a museum, but a, a, a giant home uh, with a museum's worth of art in it and um, stole a Vermeer. And uh, every time I would look at her and her name would come up over the years, I would hear something different about her. And I said, this all can't be accurate. And it wasn't. Uh, but I, so I decided I was going to research her and I found her life story and her art theft and everything about her to be so unique and fantastical that I decided to write a book about her. So that's how the the two Vermeers come into um, come into play. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, she, I mean, it is, her story is fascinating. So, you know, you got, so you really got into art theft. Why? Well, I got two questions here because this, I have to get this answered since I, I have you here, but is art theft really as common as the movies would make you believe And it? And, and is it this kind of, um, elitist, almost the elitist crime. I don't want to say white collar, but it just always seems to be done with brilliant people and a perfectly executed plan, uh, you know, or, or at least one that makes you think how clever the thieves are. Is it typically like that or are there smash and grabs and, and how common is art theft really at the higher level? Well, there's two parts to that. First, I'd say, yes, it's as common as you see in the films, but every other aspect of it that you just described is not, not uh, the truth and reality. So it's not these uh, people that you see in that show, white collar. It's not Thomas Crown. Okay. It's not some uh, ev evil billionaire. Uh, <laughs> who, who's commission. No, unfortunately, I remember uh, on the Simpsons, it might be 10 years ago. Now they had Mr. Burns had our paintings. <laughs> it's not that sort of character. Oh, that's funny. It's usually, it's like usually your common criminal who steals everything else. And they see the opportunity with some paintings and they steal them. Um, However, the, the trick is that when we're, we're talking about masterpieces now, high value masterpieces, while they're probably easier to steal than, say, a huge amount of, uh, you know, $100 million in diamonds, um, they are incredibly hard to fence. So it's um, it's fool's error. So that's why, for the most part, with one or two exceptions, Rose Dugdale being one, uh, the subject of my book, um, art thieves don't steal art more than once because they see it's futile. So they're just very, very few. And I'm fascinated by outliers 
I mean, she's she's a true definition of an outlier. Yeah, I, I think that's what struck me the most, and when as I was reading this, is is how how difficult it is to get rid of. And it seems to be you know, in the book, you know, they say that they're typically used for collateral and drug deals or bargaining chips. It just seems like such a complex thing to really have and hold on to, and then you can't ruin them. And even rolling them up, you know, one was found, you know, in like a cemetery. I mean, like leaving them out to the elements, it just seems like such, I, I don't know, this art theft just seems, unless you have a buyer and they know exactly what they want and you're stealing it for them, for their private collection, I don't really understand art theft, to be perfectly honest with you. So let's get into Rose Dugdale. I, I thought, I mean, this book is is really a page turner because I wasn't going into it. I wasn't sure. I'd never heard of her before. I wasn't sure if I was going to, um, you know, relate to her or really be interested by the story. I wasn't sure how unique it was going in because I was ignorant to the story. But I got to tell you, this is, this, you know, this is a really amazing story. Um, but let's, you know, to kind of just to tee it up a little bit, she stole uh, over the course of her kind of criminal career, I guess we could call it, or her her revolutionary career. She stole 19 paintings, and up until the point that it happened, it was the largest art theft at the time. And you know, you you say it was uniquely perpetuated by a woman. Um, I th- it was that kind of what drew you to this is that it was the largest and the uniqueness that this is normally pulled off by by men. And and is that re- actually really relevant? I think it is relevant. I give a, a lot of speeches and lectures and such about art theft. And inevitably, the question comes up, is it always men who steal art? And the answer is yes. And that's true of most terrible crimes. But um, there's always an outlier. And Rose is that. And if it ended there, it would still be fascinating. You know, fascinating. Well, this one, the only uh, woman to really steal masterpieces was Rose Dugdale. But then when you peel back the layers of her story. It's so fascinating. It's a, it's a, a story um, for our time, even though it happened in the late 60s and early 70s, because only with our perspective of present day can you look back and, and, and see what's interesting about it. For instance, when you read analyses by columnists and commentators after her major crime, you will see, even a judge, you'll see that they always just assume that this woman who was born into extreme wealth, who was a PhD, who went to Oxford, um, why would she have gone down this route? And they would always assume she must have fallen under the spell of a man. And the fact of the matter is, now that we look at it in retrospect, these men fell under her spell. So it's got that layer of, um, of, of timeliness in the sense that Nowadays, we can see that and accept it. Back then, they couldn't see and accept that maybe this woman held sway over the men. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I think there's so much to this story. People can find different things unique, you know, because the thing that stuck out, that kind of really stuck out to me was this transition that she had from debutante to militant, radicalized <laughs> revolutionary, right? <laughs> and and it's because the beginning is so interesting. Let's start. Let's start at the beginning of her story because you know she was she was you know raised in an extraordinarily wealthy household. Her you know her father was a colonel. Uh, the mother came you know her family. You mentioned it came her family. Her mother's family fortune came from the slave trade, then soap, and then cotton mills, and all of those <laughs> a lot of blood on the hands of those things, right? Totally. Um, but you know. Her the the story that that stuck out the first one was that her mom 
pierced her ears without her permission as a kid, and she has never worn earrings since. And in some ways, that really kind of sums up Rose's approach to the world. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. Absolutely. She, um, and again, for the time, it's just a, a unique thing because then uh, you see her go on to, uh, in her teens, decide she wants to go to Oxford, which it's hard for us nowadays to, to believe that a, a woman accepted to Oxford would have to convince her parents or make a deal with them to allow her to go. Right. Yeah. yeah. She did. And the deal was that she would agree to. Uh, be presented to the queen in the last ever debutante uh, presentation that would go before the queen. So she um, just this rebellious spirit. She she was not a revolutionary at the time. She still loved the spoils of being the daughter of wealth. But she she had this rebellious spirit about her. And even if you see pictures of her at this time, you can see that glint in her eye, this unmistakable impish look in her eye that that you could see what it pretends. Yeah, no, for sure. And I love that little statistic because it was 1958 and that was the, I, and I didn't really know much about this. I mean, obviously I, I like Downton Abbey and I, I love hearing about, you know, British, uh, I'm one of the weird, you wouldn't think that I would like Downton Abbey, but I was hooked on that show. Um, <laughs> but I love this idea of people having to be, you know, of women in wealth, having to be presented at a certain age. And it's, you know, for those who don't know, it, it's basically you have to, you're forced to you, you attend these social parties with the goal of of getting married and, and marrying into the right family and increasing your wealth. And the last time that happened was in 1958. And she was there for that. Like, that's amazing. And there's another great stat here is she stayed in Germany after finishing school. Another thing that people listening may not know what that is. But she <laughs> stayed in the home of Joseph Goebbels. Like, how bizarre is that? And one of her um, her dad's army friends taught her how to shoot a gun, um, which served her well as a gorilla, <laughs> as you mentioned in the book. This is such a unique upbringing. And, you know, kind of when it's focused through the lens of who she is as a person, to me, I, I love this part of her story is the really early on and then her deal to go to school. Um, and then she becomes, you know, she takes education all the way to the doctorate level. I love this part of the story. Yeah, I do too. And it's, um, I like the things that you pointed out because it's almost like these unintended consequences. Right, you know, yeah, she, yeah. she does go to Oxford and she studies, she gets the PPE where she's studying politics and philosophy and economics. And, um, you know, all of these things would be great for the classroom, which they were, but they all led her down this radical political avenue. And then she goes in 1968 to Cuba at the invitation of Castro to a, a large number of um, higher echelon type students from the West. And um, it's inter that's interesting too, because she's around, she's 27 when she goes and the rest of the people that go, the vast majority of them are around 22, Christopher Hitchens being one of them. And um, so she's, you know, when you're, when you're 27, 22 is a lot younger. There's a big difference between, uh, a recent college grad and a 27-year-old professor, mm -hmm, right? right. Um, I'm 53. A 48-year-old person is in my age range, but there's a bigger right. gap. So she's a little bit older. She's taking it much more seriously. A lot of the students were put off by Castro and his two-hour-long speeches and stuff like that. But <laughs> that really changed things for her. That was a, a really a, a real turning point. That was she was when she returned from Cuba in 68. It's you know the times. This, this period of 1968 
69 are absolutely essential to our story because, um, you know, if people knew who Rose, Rose Dugdale was, if she was a common name, I would have named the book Rose Dugdale and Her Times because the Times played such a key role. 1968 in the West was remarkable. The events that happened in 68 were just mind blowing. She comes back and then in 69, as she's being, as, as she's a growing radical, the Irish civil rights movement has a rebirth. And it's just this confluence of events where she finds her cause with Irish republicanism that leads her down uh, a path of infamy. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, 67, 68, you know, you've got um, you got the Black Power Movement, the assassination of MLK, Robert Kennedy, start of the Vietnam War. You know, 69 is, you know, we land on the moon, the Manson murders, Summer of Love is 67. Uh, I mean, you got protests, you know, th this is a I mean, this defined the baby boom generation, right? I mean, this, these, this, these are the moments where America kind of changed. And it's funny because I think, in, if I'm understanding the storyline correctly, in '66 she, she was that's when she was getting her doctorate. And so at this point, you know, she's studying. I don't want to get too mired in the trenches of the IRA movement, the specifics of that, or you know, she was. I guess she's reading a lot of far liberal material. The, po the specific politics to me, are less important, unless you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But what is important, and it's this moment that I'm really trying to, to capture, is there comes a point where she she goes from being you know, um, a liberal professor who's interested in you know, Marxist works and, and things like that, learns about the British mistreatment of, of the Irish. She goes from being kind of like an outspoken professor to a militant, radicalized full-fledged member of the IRA, and I don't know where that transition really occurs, and I'm hoping, I don't know if it's her, you know, you mentioned she went to Castro, she also goes to Belfast, uh, you know, and I think in, um, I forget what year she goes, but in 71, there was, you know, was internment camp set up for them, and then Bloody Sundays in 1972. Did you, did you discover the moment amongst all of that craziness? Is there a point where you can say, this is what did it, this is what where she kind of skewed into the tangent, you know? It's hard to pinpoint one thing. If you, if uh, in her interview, she has mentioned Cuba and she mentions Bloody Sunday as two important events, but it's much more complex than that. She, she meets up with a union leader in, uh, in uh, um, England where they, they start this workers union, uh, tenants union, they call it, in Tottenham. And she's becoming um, enamored with direct action. So rather than doing sit-ins or teaching or, you know, just just going to protest. She's going into government offices and slamming on tables and screaming at civil servants about the rights of her clients, people who might be homeless or have certain benefits they're being denied. And then it's uh, she gets arrested at a protest, but she's with this guy named Wally Heaton, who's also a revolutionary. And they together, they seem to... Um, there's a symbiosis there and there's this uh, snowballing effect where one is feeding into the other. And uh, she has this affair with him while he's married and they carry it on right in the marital bed and uh, in front of his wife. But I think they're feeding into each other. So every day, all day is becoming about revolution and the idea of direct action. So eventually they put up the Irish tricolor in front of their British office and they're learning Gaelic and they're running guns to the IRA. They run out of money. And when they run out of money, 
Rose and Wally turn to the one place she's always gotten her money, which is from her family, and they break into the family estate and steal a bunch of art and antiques. They're quickly arrested, and something really important happens, and that is that Wally is given six years in prison because he's an ex-con, and Rose is given a suspended sentence and a fine and allowed to go free, and the judge says the likelihood of you ever committing a crime like this again is remote. And he underestimated her greatly because she did it at least once again on a massive scale. But that, that that's the moment, I think, because what happens is for, I don't know, six weeks or so, she's visiting Wally. And then, you know, these, these two are desperately in love with each other. But then she just disappears and never speaks to Wally again as long as she lives and goes to Ireland and instantly takes up with a rogue IRA gorilla named uh, Mad Eddie Gallagher and he is so rogue that he's not, he's part of the IRA, but he's got his own little division because he doesn't follow orders. He doesn't act strategically like the IRA does. He does what he thinks is right. IRA, for better or for worse, uh, as violent as they were, they did things strategically. They had a mission. They, they saw themselves as a real military outfit. Eddie didn't stand for taking orders and stuff like that. And that was the perfect thing for Rose. So these two step it up in a major way and they hijack a helicopter and try to bomb a police station in Straban in Northern, Northern Ireland. And that's when you see her go from, you know, this woman in England who cares about the Irish to a woman who's trying to commit a mass murder of uh, um, UK police officers in Straban. So that I think is this period where she really, it's its 1973-74 and she just explodes. It's, I mean, you kind of nailed it perfectly because that is such a weird moment. And I don't know if it's if it's Wally kind of centered on that path, but I, I mean, I would, to see her, you know, given her background, to see her carrying on in the bed and then she, you know, robs from her family, steals a bunch of art, which sets up, you know, the the, the next couple of capers. And, and then she, like you mentioned, she gets, she kind of, she doesn't talk to Wally for the rest of her life. I would, I mean, that doesn't sound like love to me, um, unless they have, you know, some other kind of, you know, the story, the story, you know, if you read the full story, which we may or may not get to, there, there's a little bit more to that. But, okay. but I think, you know, I, I think that is an interesting point because that is the point where she goes from being someone who's, you know, an angry protester to, like you said, hijacking a helicopter I mean, and, and this is such a great plan from from a cinematic standpoint, right? I mean, because she she hijacks a plane, or I'm sorry, a helicopter, and they go to another location. They load it up with bombs. I mean, it's not a perfectly executed plan because they have to leave some behind. But then she she tries to drop them on a you know on a police station, as you mentioned. And luckily, I from what I remember, they don't blow up at all. They both land harmlessly to the ground. But that is such a major step for someone in her stature, and. Do you think that maybe that had something to do with, you know, this, another theme of the story is she had so much trouble fitting in with the IRA. I mean, she kind of gave herself like over, you know, completely to the IRA's cause, but she had a lot of trouble being accepted because of her background as a rich, you know, posh English woman. Um, do you think that's why that maybe accelerated this this change? It could. It, you know, a lot of times people uh, like her, have, I think she probably felt like she had something to prove. Yeah. Make no mistake. She's a true believer. This was not, and many people wondered, is just this uh, a phase she's going through is she just 
mucking about with the Irish cause. No, she's proved even today. I mean, she lives in Dublin and and she's one of the she's an honorary Irish person for for uh, lack of a better term. But, yeah, I think you I think you're right on there. And she when she drops these bombs at the constabulary, it really is interesting to me because I mentioned in the book that the commanding officer there, they kind of chuckled and said, oh, we watched and he was amused as they fell harmlessly into the water and on the rocks and stuff. But make no mistake, the police were not amused and they were not, they took it incredibly seriously. This is the first aerial attack since World War II. Oh, wow. Okay. In the UK. And if she had been successful and she used real explosives in a lot of them, she would have killed everybody in sight, right? This would have been a massacre of... uh, I can't even, I mean, Titanic proportion. Right. Yeah. Imagine a police constabulary in a populated, heavily densely populated area, and you're dropping four large bombs on it, right? She would have killed a heck of a lot of people. There was no laughing. It was no laughing matter. And the police were upset. And she becomes, she has a target on her back from that point on. That's why they put out these wanted posters. They, they, they take jabs at her in the posters. They, they say she's mannish in appearance and dirty and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and such. So, you know, she has – imagine even in the United States at a present day, you take somebody – look at what happened in um, – Nashville? Exactly. Thank you. So imagine, you know, take something like that, a bombing like that, that if people had been in the area, it would have been bigger than that. And to go from a person who was essentially a rabble rouser – in a bit player to someone who hijacks a helicopter and tries to kill police officers. That's a major, major deal. And um, hopefully someday this, this story will be told cinematically. And I think that will be, a, you said it, it's like something out of a movie that would be a really essential part of the story. Yeah. And, you know, and there's, you know, in your book, there's several helicopter, <laughs> helicopter escapes in, in capers. So I don't want to ruin anything. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, a little teaser for people reading the book. Um, but I think this particular moment is so important because had those bombs went off, her entire life would have been different. You know, her life kind of turned out she's almost kind of revered as a revolutionary, someone who was with the cause. But if she had blown up a police station and had killed that many people, she'd be a murderer. You know, I mean, she, she isn't that now, but that would have changed who we think of her, uh, how people, how history remembered her. So, I mean, it was in an astounding stroke of luck that the bombs didn't go off. So, uh, you know, that's true. That's very true. I mean, she might've, she would have been shoot on sight. I mean, if, if, you know, she, uh, You know, Daniel, that's a great point. You know, today she's she's sort of thought of as a whimsical. She's very, you know, she's uh, 80 years old, 80. Yeah. Um, Sort of thought of whimsically and people say little poems about her and um, and such. However, she was she attempted mass murder. Yeah. On a large scale. And you say it so well, that would have changed the course of her life forever. Uh, she probably wouldn't be with us right now mm-hmm. if she had been successful. Thank God she wasn't. I mean, you always have to, she talks about, and I talk about in the book when she decided, you know, I might have to take lives for the cause, but she was never a member of the IRA. She was sort of, uh, you know, they understood she was trying to help them, but she, the IRA, again, very strategic and would have secret talks behind the scenes with um, 
British authorities about ceasefires in different places and such and prisoner swaps and what have you. And she's out there as a free agent doing things that um, are not necessarily in line with the current strategy of the IRA in 1974. So she's she's almost trying too hard. She uh, more than almost trying too hard. Right? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And you know, it's funny because it, I mean, the image that I get is if someone were to go into you know, like if someone were to like one of these suicide bombers, right? They run into a square, they scream what they're going to scream, and they pull the pins out, and then they just stand there, and then the bomb doesn't go off, right? So luckily, everyone is saved, right. and then that person later on becomes you know, kind of this folk hero. I mean, it's like that, that is to me how right. kind of crazy her story is. I mean, it, it is really along those exact same lines, except she wasn't going to kill herself. Um, but you know, there's it, just so many parts of the story that are so bizarre. Um, so now let's, I want to get into this art theft. And I think we have to very quickly take a sidetrack here because one of the things that separated Rose from the other art thieves is her taste really like her refined cultured, a discerning taste in in artwork because she chose the proper ones, including most famously two Vermeers. Now I got to tell you right off the bat, Anthony, I had never heard of Johannes Vermeer before I read your book, and I, I got to be honest because if I'm not honest, how can we possibly establish the trust necessary to talk about art, the history of art theft? So I got to I got to lay my cards right on the table. Um, but let's talk about Johannes Vermeer for a second. What makes these paintings so valuable? I think it's kind of a confluence of three different things. First of all, there's very few paintings. I think there's maybe 30, 34. Uh, they're incredibly rare. They're also incredibly old. We're talking about the 1600s. That's when Vermeer was uh, was most active. And then we have the skill. He was an incredible, incredible craftsman. He was a, he was an artist at the cutting edge of his class. And he tried a lot of very new techniques that were um, kind of unseen, untested at the time, but but had just quite an effect on the on the art world in general. Um, so I think that's a pretty generous, albeit weak, summation of Johannes Vermeer. Uh, what do you think? No, that's a good summation. I think um, you hit the elements. Uh, he, You're right. He only has 36 known works. The, the way I try to explain it to um, people who aren't art historians like me, I'm not an art historian and uh, I just love art. He, you could compare him in ways to Leonardo. So both of them in terms of paintings had around the same number of paintings. They're both incredibly highly sought after because they're rare and because they're incredible works. So Vermeer's paintings are beautiful and beautifully executed works. The subject matter of his works is mysterious. So any one of his paintings you could look at for a very long time and try to figure out the backstory to it and it'd be difficult. And I give you this example. I would argue that two of the most mysterious paintings, uh, portraits at least, in Western civilization would be the Mona Lisa by Leonardo and the Girl with the Pearl Earring by Vermeer. People have looked at these two paintings for hundreds of years trying to wonder what was behind the gaze of these two women. And they were painted by Leonardo and Vermeer, and they have that appeal. So the painting, there's two paintings stolen by Rose that I allege one of them uh, was from a different theft. It's called The Guitar Player. And again, if you look at this painting at first glance, it's a woman playing a guitar, big deal. 
but it's so beautifully executed, even in, in the sense of like one of the strings is trembling. But then when you study it, you notice she's not exactly on center in the painting and she's looking at someone and you start to think, was she playing with a group of musicians? Was she entertaining a man? Um, what's going on here? The other painting that Rose stole in, in The Bigger Theft is a painting called Woman, uh, uh, Lady Writing a Letter with Her Maid. And again, at first glance, it's a woman seated, seated at a table writing a letter. But then when you study it more closely, you see her maid, and you can't really tell if she looks concerned and worried um, on the floor. I didn't notice this for months after seeing this painting. There's a crumbled up letter on the floor. Was Did she get bad news? Did she get bad news from a lover? Was she jilted? Um, is she writing in responses? It's just, this is the element of Vermeer these quiet paintings that speak to you. The lighting is incredible. And um, there's a website called essentialvermeer.com. It's not my website. It's um, by uh, another person. And it is remarkable. And anybody who's interested in Vermeer should check it out. No, I think that that's, I mean, that is kind of exactly the type of stuff that art critics, you know, and I think that all the stuff you're talking about is what makes his art so special. But again, he's not Rembrandt. And at times in some of these heists, there were Rem everyone knows Rembrandt. Everyone and, and just to be clear, you're talking about Da Vinci, not the Ninja Turtle, correct? When you say Leonardo? <laughs> I just want to make that clear yes, for the audience. Exactly. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I think that that's really important because that is what separated Rose Dugdale from the rest. Most people would have grabbed the Rembrandt or the Picasso, as you mentioned, because those are have obvious value. But Vermeer is something that that art critics would know more about and, and the subtleties and the important, you know, techniques that he used to, to craft the paintings. Those are things that, that are what make her stand out. And you mentioned the guitar player. So this was stolen. Uh, this is 1974, February 24th from the Kenwood house. And this, I love this story because there are so many elements of this story that really appeal to me. This is, this is by far and away my favorite heist, uh, probably my favorite element of the book. And so from what I understand, this is the art house of the Guinness magnet, Lord Ivech. Am I saying that correctly? Mm -hmm. and, and so, yes, you are. Yes, the Kenwood <laughs> house. It's the Guinness family's house. So just tell me a little bit about the, the this particular theft, and I'm going to try to paint in the areas that, that I found super interesting. Sure. So uh, you mentioned the date. It was late February of 74, and um, there, you know, there are guards in the museum, and they hear a noise, and one of the guards goes, and when he gets there, he sees that um, a, a window has been penetrated in, in, in a certain room in the Kenwood house, and in this room are... Uh, about a dozen beautiful, remarkably valuable paintings, including a Rembrandt. And you can go on the Kenwood House website and take a virtual tour and you'll see the Rembrandt. It's a self-portrait of, uh, of him when he was older. And it's, you know, you can see it's clearly a Rembrandt, but they only take one painting and they take, Vermeer's works are rather small and they take this one painting called the guitar player. And when they steal this painting, they get away. Nobody has any idea who did it or why. And then letters start coming into the authorities. Well, from, on, let me pause you there because there's a couple of moments in the actual art theft. So they cut the phone lines like in a horror movie. They they mm -hmm. padlock the doors so the people can't actually get out. 
and then they (laughs) and then they make their getaway through a place called Hampton Heath which what I love about this is it was a local gay meetup this is 1974 so people I'm I'm understanding this isn't like San Francisco this is more underground so people that were meeting there they knew that discretion was key you had to keep your mouth shut so even though they may have seen people run through there the culture was to not say anything because everyone was had a secret that they were hiding and they wanted to maintain their safety to be frank and i think that that was really important because that is the brilliance of using that as an escape route because they knew that they could run through there and not be caught not be detected because no one would say a word it was and knowing her um some of that might have been uh, just good luck because she was really smart about what to take. But in terms of getaways and traf- uh, traffic in the trafficking in the art, she wasn't smart. But you're exactly right. Nobody wanted to say they were in the area and saw anything because it's 1974 and so many more people were closeted and had to operate in the shadows um, just for the the mere fact that they uh, were um, homosexual. So it was a dangerous time for them. Nobody was going to say they were there. Uh, Just a remarkable thing. And you're right, you know, locking the doors um, so the guards couldn't get out to get help. Just an incredible heist. And then to make matters even more amazing, letters start coming in from somebody saying that they have the paintings um, and just a lot of letters actually start coming in about ridiculous requests saying that foreign aid had to be sent. Um, uh, just things that were unbelievable. But finally, a letter comes in to the authorities that seems legit. And the police take notice. And then the scariest part, a, a letter comes in with a piece of the canvas. Now, the canvas was from the side of the stretcher. So, you know, it doesn't affect what the viewer sees in the painting. But when you get a piece of canvas, you know you're dealing with the right person. And the demands they make are exactly the same demands that Rose Dugdale makes just a few weeks later after she steals her mayor from the Rossborough house. So there's a real parallel. And I know you don't want to go too deep down this road, but we talked about the confluence of events that had happened. But in 1973, a woman named Dolores Price and her sister Marion, who were essentially the first two female IRA soldiers, like active soldiers in the IRA, uh, pulled off a bombing in Great Britain. They felt, uh, they claimed Jerry Adams ordered it. He denies it. But they felt it was enough with the bombings in Northern Ireland. Let's bring it to England itself. And it, you know, it was the first bombing since the war. They blew up uh, four car bombs, one of them in front of the famous Old Bailey Courthouse. It injured hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, nobody died from the blast. But imagine the Boston Marathon bombing without any deaths, but all of the maimings and injuries. These two women go to prison along with the men that were with them, four men. And they immediately go on a hunger strike. And um, to counter the hunger strike, the authorities start force feeding them, which is a gruesome operation. I wasn't aware of it until I researched it. And uh, they were demanding to be sent home to Northern Ireland to serve their sentences, political prisoners. So what I, uh, the long story short is that these two Vermeer thefts, the ransom letters, were demands that the Price sisters be sent back to Northern Ireland to, f- to serve out their sentences as political prisoners 
or the paintings would be destroyed. And that plan went awry. Well, destroyed on, on St. Patrick's Day, um, which is which is an interesting little little detail. Um, but also a couple of other things here that I thought were really interesting is after this theft, the BBC and ITV wanted to broadcast an image of the painting. I mean, I don't really know the effectiveness of this because no one's going to, no one's going <laughs> to casually see this in their neighbor's house. Right. Um, but they couldn't broadcast the image because the license, the owner of the license of the image, I don't even know how this works really. Um, they wanted to charge too much. So everyone relied on verbal description of the painting. So when this priceless piece of art was stolen, they couldn't even broadcast a picture of it for people to see. Um, it's just really crazy to me. And you left out the most interesting part of the story here, but I'm guessing that this probably didn't appeal to you as much as it did to me. But there was a woman named Bella Jones who was who claimed her to, to be a psychic, essentially. Um, she had a vision of this theft and her the the details she, she drew a map gave it to um the police scotland yard got involved and she actually was able to lead them not only to parts of the frames that were left behind but also she said that the the guitar player which was stolen from the kenwood house would be found in a cemetery and when they claimed that they were you know when the when the ransomers claimed they were going to burn it this particular psychic bella jones said don't worry it's going to be found in a cemetery and sure enough is it nella or bella i'm sorry i may be getting her name nella, nella. i'm sorry no no problem nella, nella, yeah. nella jones uh, so that it wouldn't be burned to be found in a cemetery. and But she was actually right on several of these occasions. Uh, I, I love that. That's my favorite part of that story. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned those two things about the license and about the psychic, because these things really relate to my day job <laughs> uh, as an yeah. art investigator. So on the first, my suspicion, purely speculation, is you know, the, the cost of licensing the photo. So if you, let's suppose you were writing a book about the art theft that happened at the Gardner Museum and you wanted to use one of our paintings in the book, you'd contact the museum and they would charge you a fee to use it. Um, and that was true back then. Now the fee that the BBC was probably asked to pay was very little and they, di they didn't pay it. My suspicion, total speculation is that the BBC said, you, mean, you know, if they're going to charge us for this, we're not going to, I mean, they were doing them a favor. Right. It is a great thing to be able to broadcast missing paintings on television. So they were probably like, to heck with them. If they're going to charge us, we'll just, you know. Stronger sadly. language, but yeah, I'm sure that's what they yeah. said. Yeah. Well, they're, well, they're British. Yeah, <laughs> right. so they probably said, you know, uh, right. something very polite. Sure, but, sure. Um, Saw that or something like that. Yeah. On the second part, my suspicion, I, I've been contacted by more psychics than I could count. Um, all of them charlatans, well-meaning or otherwise. My suspicion about the Nella Jones story is that she wasn't really right, that, but they used her story as a cover. I believe, unless Rose Duggio comes out and says otherwise, and I still probably would believe it, I believe that she told them where that painting was or someone associated with her, and they used the Nella Jones revelations as a cover as to how they recovered it because um somebody they to pre prevent somebody from getting in trouble because i don't believe in psychics and i don't believe for a second that the psychic was able to lead them to a stolen painting um i wish psychics could because i've spent 15 years looking for paintings that they call me about but um i think it was even more interesting and in that the police probably used her as a cover 
for the recovery of the Vermeer. Because keep in mind, nobody has ever been prosecuted for that crime. And for the first time, I, I spell out the case against Rose for having stolen that guitar player. Right, because she never confessed. We don't know for certain whether she even committed that crime. Um, and, you know, and one of the other things that's interesting about that, it does, just to give you a counter argument here, it does seem a little convoluted to add a psychic to the police, to the story, even, you know, as well as well serving as it might be. But also, apparently you're not familiar with Alison Dubois or the TV show Medium or the fact that a lot of police stations <laughs> actually hire psychics. Uh, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you like the efficacy of their of their visions. I don't know, but I do find it very interesting that legitimate police stations, whether they will admit it or not, whether it's part of their you know black ops, you know for for lack of a better term, their their you know dark money that goes into some of these psychics. Uh, but they do have do think, them on. Staff. Do you think they really do? Do you think they really do? Because uh, yeah, the reason yeah, I, I bring this up is because. Um, I wrote a book called Stealing Rembrandts, and my co-author in that book was a guy named Tom Mashberg, who's an investigative reporter. And um, he worked on a story and did years worth of research to find any real instance where a psychic actually helped the police solve a crime. And he was unable to locate a single instance where any, any crime had been solved by a psychic well, here's here's what I will tell you, and and this means nothing. We barely know each other, so take this with a grain of salt, right? <laughs> okay. Um, but but I do a I have an interest in that part of of the world. I love fringe topics, and I find them really interesting. I love stories. When it comes to what I actually believe, I am an open minded skeptic. So I really don't believe things without without a lot of proof. I will tell you from personal experience that I have known and heard people who have no connection to me tell me things that they should not and could not know. And I am well aware of James Randi and how, you know, the charlatans in the spiritual era and how people, mentalists and all of those techniques, I have still been amazed at times. That doesn't mean anything to anyone. But if you're asking me if I could believe that there are people that are somehow able to tap into whatever it is and are helping police, I don't think that there would be, I don't think that they would be, police departments would be paying people money if they didn't at some level provide a function that justified their salary. But I've never seen a person who's really actually been paid by the police. But I believe you if you have. I'm just saying. Oh, I see what you're saying. 30 year career, I can't find an instance where the police have paid a psychic. Now, there may be some. Um, I think it's dark money, one. Anthony. I think it's. I. Th I don't think anyone would want to admit that because I think that the overwhelming consensus would be that's ridiculous. That's taxpayer money. What are you doing? That's that's crazy. Well, the flip side to, to that though is. I can tell you from experience that so many psychics call you when a crime, a noteworthy crime happens that I wouldn't even know how the police, again, where you, this is just you and I speculating, but sure. I wouldn't even know how the police would choose which psychic they're going to listen to. I have been contacted by every major psychic you can imagine and countless other amateur psychics, hundreds of them. And I wouldn't even know like, oh, this is the one I should listen to because they're, how would I know? But it's, it's such an interesting thing. That's a good 
You know, that's a good topic for another book. I, I think it is. Uh, put me as at least created by. Just give me created by credit <laughs> and it. I won't charge you, you any it. licensing fees. Yeah, of course. Um, but I mean, this is this is a, I mean, this is a great place to end it for me because <laughs> I love talking about this stuff. We didn't get to the Rossboro home robbery, but I'm going to save that for the book because that in and of itself is another great art theft and with a lot of cool twists and turns. And, you know, I, I, these were these were great capers, well worthy of a movie in and of themselves individually. Uh, but if people want to get this book, I, they, I mean, how could they not want to get this book at this point? But if, 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 they want, if they want to get a hold of it, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, I always like to tell people to support their local brick and mortar bookstores um, and check there because it's available everywhere. Um, if you can't get it there, and nowadays you can even check online if a place has it in stock. So please support your, your brick and mortar bookstores. But there's always Amazon and Barnes and Noble, um, as we know in other um, e-retailers like Books A Million. But um, so any place that you buy books, you can get this book. Uh, but it's always a nice thing to um, keep bookshops in, in uh, business. Especially now in these troubling times when you can't even go into them if you wanted to. Um, yeah, they, that's what Absolutely. that's what the internet's for, right? Help them keep up staying business online. Um, now how can people get in touch with you? Are you on social media? Um, do you if, you if you've got a psychic out there who's got a tip on where all of the stolen artwork from the Isabel Garden Museum is, where can they get in touch with you? Well, if you have information about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum theft, you can contact me at uh, it's the easiest email address to remember: theft at gardnermuseum.org. <laughs> That's pretty easy. Can't, you can't beat that. But uh, we, we we ask that people contact us only with facts and not with theories. I get a lot of theories. Okay. <laughs> but if, you, if you're interested in finding me, I'm at anthonyamore.com. Couldn't be easier. anthonyamore.com. And are you on social media? Do you Twitter, Facebook, uh, any of that stuff? All over Twitter, all over Facebook by the same name and uh, Instagram. Um, too many of them, in fact, and, but I'm happy to meet you. So please uh, follow and, and say hi. I w and I'll have all this stuff for it. So easy, it's easy uh, access on the website. Um, so this has been wonderful. This is I, I got to thank you for introducing me not only to Rose Dugdale, but to the real world that is art theft, because until you and I spoke, I thought this was a part of, of cinematic tropes. Really, I didn't think this was possible, but uh, this has been enlightening, to say the least. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me, Daniel. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Well, I, I enjoyed having you and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like the show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can even find an audio version on YouTube. But if you like this show, you've got to check out the website fascinatingnouns.com where you can learn more about every guest look at some news stories find video links links to pictures we got all kinds of stuff great stuff including every past episode of fascinating nouns in the archive check it out fascinatingnouns.com also on the webpage you can find links to the show's social media platforms twitter facebook instagram pinterest and youtube it's all right there fascinatingnouns.com and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening and of transmission.